you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to be with you all today and worship together and join together as one body under the Lordship of our resurrected King, and to hear from Him together. And if you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 13, we're going to spend a little bit of time today and take a slight break from our series through the Gospel of John. Acts chapter 13. I recently heard a true story that was shocking to me. It was about a woman from the nation of Syria, and she had to leave the country very quickly because of the fighting going on there. So along with her family, they returned to her home. They had just a few moments to grab whatever possessions they could carry with them, and then they had to flee, and they haven't returned since. So they're living outside of Syria as refugees. One of the few things that they were able to take was a book. They had just moments, as I said, to choose, and they chose a book that had been in their family for generations. And it was a book that detailed their family tree. Now, sometimes it's common here in the U.S. to have families that are interested in genealogy or they track their family trees. And maybe you know a little bit about your family, uh, maybe about your grandfather, great-grandfather, maybe even a little bit beyond that. But we usually don't know too much about a lot of generations removed from us. But this woman's family tree in this book was detailed all the way back to within a few generations of Abraham. So we're talking several thousands of years. And I had to reread it because I thought I was getting it wrong because it stunned me that someone in this day and age could have a connection all the way back to that time before Jesus even. And we can learn something from that. Other cultures have a recognition that that they're bound to their ancestors and they find a connection with the people that they came from and they feel that they can learn from them and there's a strong sense of uh, unity with those that have come before. And we can learn from that here. No person stands alone and no church stands alone. And we do well to learn from those and feel a connection with those that have gone before us. And when we gather together as a church and we open up our scriptures, you might say that this is the book that contains our family tree. We have our ancestors in the faith that have followed in the stream of history of those that have submitted themselves to the living God and that have submitted themselves to Jesus in the New Testament. And so today, as we look at Acts chapter 13, we're going to go back to a church that we might say this church in our our family tree of churches, this is one of our ancestors. This is one of the first churches we see in the New Testament that becomes sort of a sending church where they send out missionaries. This is the church at Antioch, which was located in what is now modern day Syria, interestingly enough, where our, our woman was from a moment ago. And if you have not heard the good news... Within the next few weeks, we're going to be sending out our very own Bobby and Carissa Howes to the Philippines to share the gospel. And we are extremely grateful for that opportunity. And so 
this morning, as we take a break from the book of John, we're going to look at this church. And so next week, I think, or in the next few weeks when we commission them, and then in the next month or so when we actually send them out and, and the house leave, let's embrace the fact that this is not something we're doing alone. This is something that we're doing continuing in this tradition of churches since the church began in the book of Acts, where they say, the mission doesn't stop with us, it must go out. And so we'll take our best and we will send them out. So we're going to look at this church together and just make some observations and see how we can apply some of these things to our church and to our own lives. Now, before we read the passage, I want to say that, especially when we're in the book of Acts, there can be a danger of reading this and saying, okay, this is what happened in the book of Acts, so this is what should be happening in our church today. We have to read it carefully because this is a very unique book where the church is just getting started and a lot of really strange things are happening and a lot of sort of once-in-a-lifetime things are happening. So we don't want to be sloppy and say everything we see in Acts should be happening in our church today. Some churches do that today and you get into all sorts of problems. So we don't want to do that, but there are observations There are things that are helpful for us to apply, and we're going to look at some of those together. So let's just read this passage. It's Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. And we'll see a picture of the church at Antioch, but we will also see them send out Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. So not only will we see the church, we'll see what the church did and what happened when the gospel is sent out from the church through the mouths of these missionaries. Before we read, I want to pray. I ask that you'd pray with me too that God's Spirit would lead and guide and that we would be submissive to Him. Father, we want to be extremely humble under Your hand. We want to be people that see Your ancient story and understand that it's still going on today. We want to worship You and we want to be open to what Your Spirit is calling us to do. So please guide me today and guide us. Under your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Starting in verse 1, God's word says to us this, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, 
Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. When you look at the first few verses of this chapter, Luke is very intentional about describing for us the leadership that we find in this church. Now, this is not the first time that this church at Antioch has been mentioned in the book of Acts. It's been mentioned several times, and this is set up as a model church for us. And this is a very significant turning point in the book of Acts where the church at Antioch becomes the focus rather than the church at Jerusalem. So the gospel is expanding, and the focus is moving not just from Jewish territory, but now into Gentile territory, and now into a church that's being led by a mix of Jewish and non-Jewish leaders. So this is a really significant point in Acts. And the first thing that we can see, the first observation that we should make is the leadership of the church at Antioch was diverse. This was a church with a diverse leadership. Antioch was a city that was full of people from all around the world. It was a city of commerce. There was business going on all of the time. It was an important city. And so you can imagine that there were people from all over the known world coming there with all sorts of different languages and cultures and ethnic backgrounds. And the leadership of this church was sort of an expression of the mixture of that city. But this is very important for us. Now, a moment ago, I said that the leadership was diverse. Diversity is a big word in our culture today. And when I said the word, you might have had a reaction. Maybe positive, maybe negative. But we hear about diversity all of the time. But what I think is powerful for us here is the diversity that we see in the scriptures and in this passage in particular goes far beyond the diversity that we hear most people calling for today. Diversity is a good thing. But I I notice that today a lot of the diversity that people are always talking about is just surface deep. I've read about companies that have diversity boards and they want to make sure that a certain percentage of the leaders in the company are diverse. And that diversity is, interestingly enough, um, described by the leaders. They have a specific kind of diversity they're looking for. And it's usually just people that aren't white. They want to bring together people that don't all look the same. But it's just skin deep. And again, diversity is a good thing. But when you see diversity here, and Luke intentionally names these people and their backgrounds, as we're going to see in a moment, the diversity in the book of Acts is not a group of people leading the church saying, we need some people that look different. We need to get some diversity within the church. We we have to be something different. This is a natural bringing together of people through the gospel because the gospel of Jesus is breaking down barriers that divided people for centuries. This is really key. So let's just look at this and we'll talk more about that in a moment. Luke names for us here different people that come from different backgrounds, They speak different languages. They come from different social classes. They have different spiritual gifts. Everything that you can see here is a mixture and a diversity. First, we see that the church was being led at Antioch by people who were prophets and teachers. So there's a diversity of giftings from God. There are prophets and teachers. And then they're named for us. First of all, we have Barnabas. We don't have any more information about him here except that this is Barnabas, but we know from other parts of the scriptures that he was from the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. And we also know that he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. 
and he was a Levite. So he comes from this background in the Mediterranean. He has a Jewish background. Then we go on to Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger is just Latin for dark or black. So this was a black man, probably from Africa, who had somehow made his way up to Antioch. Then next we have Lucius of Cyrene. He was probably from what we have in North Africa today, modern-day Libya. Lucius was there. Then we have Manayan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, lifelong friend has this idea that he grew up with him. He probably went to school with him. And this is the Herod that we see that was involved in the trial of Jesus. This is also the Herod that had the head of John the Baptist cut off. So this uh, Manayan here grew up probably with a, a large um, upper-class background. And you have this interesting divergence where Herod turns against the work of God, cuts off the head of John the Baptist, testifies against Jesus, and then you have Manayan later becoming a leader in the early church. He believes in Jesus. He comes from that background, and he follows in that way. And then finally you have Saul, of course, who becomes Paul in this very passage. So you see this mixture here in this church. When you get to the book of Acts, ethnicity and divisions because of cultures are a huge part in the book of Acts. And that's why I said that the diversity we see here is much more impressive than what we see people calling for here today. Understand that the Jews and the Gentiles had been at odds forever. And then you have this message of Jesus and you have Gentiles who have no former association with the Jewish religion coming to faith in Jesus. And this is so scandalous in the early church that they send out teams from Jerusalem to investigate these different towns where you have these big uprisings of non-Jewish people that are coming to faith in Jesus. You even have it in Acts chapter 6. The church is this mix of Jewish and non-Jewish background believers, and they start fighting. And they think, well, people are playing favorites. They don't care about us because we weren't Jewish before we came to Jesus. They're not taking care of us. So they have to set up a group of deacons to care for them. This runs throughout the book of Acts. These are long-standing, deep-seated hatreds and animosities. So much so that in Antioch, that's where people were first called Christians. I think the outside culture needed a name, some kind of a category, to define these people in this church who are coming from all of these different backgrounds and then calling each other brother and sister. So this is scandalous. It's the power of the cross. So when we come to this portion in the book of Acts, it is kind of hard for us to get what Luke is trying to say to us here. But maybe an example would help. If you've been watching the news, you know that the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians right now is raging. It's the worst it's been in years. People are literally dying every day. They're shooting rockets. Buildings are collapsing. There is hatred. Bullets are flying. There is rage. There are two groups that cannot stand each other. They're fighting for this same land. Now, I want you to imagine that a man from Palestine comes to faith in Jesus. And then I want you to imagine that a man from Israel comes to faith in Jesus. And then together, they plant a church in Jerusalem. And they're leading that church together under the lordship of Jesus. And they're saying, this is my brother. That's a picture of what you see in the book of Acts. So this isn't just surface-level stuff that Luke wants us to see. And so the observation for us here is the leadership of a church celebrates and expresses the gospel 
when you have people from different giftings, different cultures, and even people who are formerly at odds with each other in deep ways coming together because Jesus is the great common denominator. And Jesus has broken down those walls. So this is a celebration of the work of Christ just by the listing of the names of these gentlemen who were leading the church. So that's what we see with that description. So here we have these leaders. What are they doing? Verse 2 tells us that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And as they're doing this, the Holy Spirit speaks to them. As they're doing this, the Holy Spirit speaks to them. Now, obviously this is just sort of a standalone message and we haven't been in the book of Acts for a while. But I just want to take a moment to focus on the role of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts because this is also very instructive for us today in our churches. You cannot get past in the book of Acts the work of God's Spirit. If you read your Bibles on the first page of Acts, it's usually called the Acts of the Apostles in the Bible. But many have said that this should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And this is something that's very easy to miss, but it's actually extremely crucial. Because if we set about trying to do God's ministry without God's power, we're going in the wrong direction. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus meets with his disciples before he goes to heaven. And do you remember what he tells them to do? He tells them, wait. Wait until power from on high comes. And then go out. And then engage in this mission that I've called you to. The first instruction in the book of Acts is not to go and to get to work and to start. The first instruction is to wait until the Spirit falls. And then we see him fall in power at Pentecost. And that's another picture of this um, expression of God's desire for the nations because what happens at Pentecost? God's Spirit comes and it's like the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament where the languages are confused. For a moment, the Tower of Babel is undone. And all nations of the earth are hearing the good news of God in their language because the Spirit is filling the speakers. And then as you go on, the Spirit moves Philip to share with the Ethiopian eunuch. And he moves in people and he shows himself through his visible presence when they come to faith in him as they speak in tongues and as they're filled with the Spirit. And here in the book of uh, Acts chapter 13, we see the Spirit again. The Spirit speaks when they submit themselves to him in prayer and fasting. So we do not want to move too quickly over that. And say, okay, that's the Holy Spirit, we understand, let's move on. Here's the second thing for us. And this is tied to what we've just been saying. In addition to being a church with a diverse leadership, the church at Antioch was utterly dependent upon God. The church at Antioch was utterly dependent upon God. Luke, as he's writing for us, doesn't do too much except just say, They're worshiping and fasting. And then a moment later, he says they're praying and fasting. But that is shorthand for they were dependent upon God. When the church finds itself in prayer, when the church finds itself here setting aside the normal activities of daily life and the normal activities of ministry to simply seek God's face in prayer, that 
is an expression of dependence. And when the church gives up the normal eating and intake of food in a time of fasting to seek God's face, that is an expression of dependence. So what we must learn and what we must embrace as a church, as leaders in the church and as individuals is, if we have lost a sense of our fragility, and if we have lost a sense of how needy we are, and if we have lost that attitude of utter dependency on God, and we've moved away from that to focus on programs or planning things on a whiteboard or whatever it might be, we have taken 10 steps in the wrong direction. It is so easy when things are flowing and people are coming to the church and the programs seem to be working to step away from that place. But notice here, that is the space in which the Holy Spirit speaks. That is the place in which the Holy Spirit moves because God sees the humble and he moves toward that. So, this observation, utter dependence, utter fragility, utter need. It must mark us. It must be what sets us apart because That's what defined the early church, and that is where our power is found in our understanding of our weakness. What is the message that the Spirit has for this church? Verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. It doesn't explain what the work is, But we know that the work is eventually going to be, in the next verse revealed, that they're going out. They're not staying in the church. This is a church that didn't separate missions from the mission. This is a church that didn't separate missions from the mission. That's the third thing for us. They didn't save their best for themselves. They sent because they understood that the mission to go was in line with the mission that they were engaged in there at Antioch. Some of you know that my wife and I are are missionaries ourselves in Japan, and we've been delayed here. And when we went through the process of raising funds, I talked with a lot of different pastors. And no one would come out and say it, of course. But sometimes there is this implication almost that we're sort of focused here. We're kind of going to focus on here and getting this going. And then the time is right. Then we'll look at sending or we'll think about missions in the future. And you you talk to different people and there's there's this misunderstanding that missions is sort of a secondary thing that we do if we get the time for it once things are rolling here. But if you go back to the beginning of the book of Acts, when Jesus tells his disciples to wait, he says that after they're filled with the Spirit, they'll be witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The circle is getting wider. But the mission in Jerusalem at home is the same as the mission for the ends of the earth. It's that the name of Jesus would be known. So you don't see Antioch saying, we're a young church. We have a lot of needs here. We need Saul. We need Barnabas. We need these guys with us. You see them saying, the Spirit is telling us to send them. We're going to send them. There is no division or separation, and that is a huge thing for us. 
The church that's strong is not afraid. The church that is strong is a church of weak people who are dependent on God, but it's a church of trust where they say, we'll send out our leaders, we'll send our best. If the Lord calls, if the Spirit leads, we won't stand in the way. Because if he calls them out, he will provide for us here. Now here's something important to notice. Paul and Barnabas were some of the most gifted in the church. These weren't just some people that were sort of new Christians and they had sort of an interest in going overseas and the church said, okay, we'll we'll give them some money and we'll see what happens. These were men with track records, long track records of ministry before this. Paul doesn't become a missionary at this moment. He's already been used by God. He's already been used in fantastic, unspeakable ways and so has Barnabas. And yet the church releases them and lets them go. So the question for us must be, Redeemer Church, if God calls Greg somewhere else, if God calls Greg to the nations, will we release him? If Greg is called to China or Chicago or wherever it might be, will we save him for ourselves? Will we keep him? This church can't go on without Greg Gomer. Don't laugh, Greg. (laughs) Or will we release him? Or Nathan, or whoever it might be. Or the house. The house have done fabulous things in this church. Will we hold them? I wish you wouldn't go. People in Springfield haven't heard the gospel. Just stay here. We release them in the power of the Spirit when the Spirit speaks, and that's what he seems to be doing. Ajith Fernando is a Sri Lankan scholar, and this is what he said about this passage, and I think it's very helpful. The Spirit directed Barnabas and Saul to be set apart for reaching the lost. These were the top leaders of the church, and the young church in Antioch presumably had many needs. But when God calls, we must release. Even those we consider the most important and valued persons. That's how important missions is. May we not be reluctant to challenge all, the brilliant and the ordinary to consider missions. And when such are called, may we release them wholeheartedly for the work. May we release them wholeheartedly for the work. So let's just take a moment and just breathe. What are we seeing here? It's not that complicated. It's a group of people coming together from various backgrounds, bound together because they believed that the Jewish Messiah had risen again from the grave. And they believed that there was a message that was for all nations. And they believed it so much that they submitted themselves to the leadership of God. And when the Spirit directed that they send out, they sent. And then we see what happens on that first journey. So it's diverse, it's utterly dependent on God, it doesn't save for itself, but it sends out. The church prays, the church listens, the church obeys. And then at the end of Acts chapter 14, the missionaries who are sent from this church come back and report what God has done. So in a month or two, when the hows go out, we join the church at Antioch by saying, we will send you, we will lay our hands on you, we will pray for you, you will go and come back. And tell us what God has done in the Philippines.
Verse 3, interestingly, there's a kind of a sandwich here. There's praying and worshiping, and then the Spirit speaks. And then in verse 3, more praying and fasting. They lay their hands on them and they send them off. Interestingly, Luke wrote Acts. How does the ministry of Jesus start in the book of Luke? He prays and he fasts, and then he goes out. So there's something powerful about seeking the face of God and saying, God, I want to do this for you. This is your work. This is not me. This is not mine. It's not because missions is my thing. This is you. So I pray, I fast, I seek your face. Your church lays its hands on me, and I go. Look at verse 4. It's interesting. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Verse 3, the church sent them out. Verse 4, they're sent by the Holy Spirit. It's a partnership. As the Spirit leads and the church obeys, they're just doing what God has told them to. So in verse 4, you can say it a different way, that they're being sent out by the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? They go to a port city called Seleucia, and from there they sail to Cyprus. One thing that is helpful here. If you look at how many miles separate Antioch from Cyprus, it's not that many. It's just an island in the Mediterranean to the west of Syria. We oftentimes think missions involves going thousands and thousands of miles. It, it, does, it can, but it doesn't have to. So just keep in mind, yes, this is the first missionary journey. I should have looked. I don't know how many miles they, it took them to get from Antioch to this island of Cyprus, but it wasn't a lot. But they still went out, and that's the important thing. They're going to new places and new lands with this message. So Cyprus is still a nation today. It actually, uh, it's a little island that's full of monasteries. There's a strong ancient Christian influence there. And there's even a monastery that's dedicated to Luke, the author of our gospel today. So that would go back to this missionary journey. It had an effect that you could still see today. What do they do when they go? It says uh, in verse 5 that they arrive at Salamis and they do Paul's normal routine. He starts with the synagogue first, goes in, shares the message of the Messiah who's fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament, who's risen again from the grave. And it tells us that John Mark was with them to assist them. And it doesn't tell us anything else. So he's preaching, but apparently there was nothing that Luke felt the need to record for us in terms of what happened until you get to verse 6. And now they've made a circuit throughout the whole island and they've arrived at the capital. They've arrived at the main city called Paphos. And in Paphos, they meet two people. And this is where the story really becomes fascinating. First, they meet a sorcerer, and then they meet the proconsul, or the governor of Cyprus. First, it tells us in verse 6 that they come across a certain Jewish magician, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, or son of Jesus. And I don't know why, but history tells us that Cyprus was full of these Jewish magicians and sorcerers. I have no idea why there was a strong concentration of them. And you have this strange mix of sorcery and black magic and the ancient Jewish scriptures. And he's calling himself son of Jesus. So I have no idea what's going on, but somehow this guy has gained prominence on the island, probably because he's able to do things through the dark arts that are impressive. And it says that this man was influencing the other character we see in verse 7. It says he was with the proconsul named Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. So the proconsul is the governor. Cyprus was kind of a vacation island. I've heard it compared to our modern-day Hawaii. 
And this guy, Sergius Paulus, was in charge of it. This is part of the Roman Empire, and it was a very quiet island. There weren't a lot of uprisings. There wasn't a strong military presence. There wasn't a need for that. It was a good place to retire. And Sergius Paulus was probably being rewarded by the Romans for his service. And so he's kind of just got a cushy position where he's just in charge of this quiet place. He's relaxing in the Mediterranean. But he would have known what was happening on the island, and he probably would have heard about Saul and Barnabas before they arrived. So they arrive, and he wants to hear them because he wants to know what the message is. So then suddenly you have two competing voices because you have this magician who no doubt wanted to keep his place of prominence. He probably has influence on the island because he's got the ear of the governor. And now he's being threatened. And now these guys are here and they've got this different message and he doesn't like it. So now you start to have this sort of power encounter that you've already seen in the book of Acts where there's this opposition. And I said earlier that there is this stream from the beginning to the end of Acts of the power of God's Spirit that's working and animating to carry out the mission. But there's this, there's this contrasting stream, which is opposition. You have the spiritual leaders, you have rulers, you have individuals, and here now you have the second sorcerer, the first one being mentioned in Acts chapter 8, who tells Peter, let me buy the power of the Holy Spirit from you. I like what's happening. And that's his way of opposing the gospel. So you see these two different streams, but here is this opponent, and he tries to stop it. Look at verse 8. Elymas the magician opposed them. He opposed Saul and Barnabas, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, Luke is very underscored in the things that he writes. You just have to sort of focus on them for a moment just like we talked about with prayer and fasting. It's just two words, prayer and fasting, but it it expresses a lot. Think about what this sorcerer is doing. This is demonic. He's opposing the gospel. Probably for the sake of money and power, he's opposing the message of the resurrected Christ so that he can keep his place. And so now you have this encounter where it's the gospel versus falsehood. And Paul finally gets tired of it. And verse 9 is where his name switches from, Paul, or from Saul to Paul. And that's also a major turn in the book of Acts. It goes now from his Jewish name to his Roman name. And it never goes back to Saul. He's now Paul for the rest of the book. If you guys have read any of his letters, you know that Paul wasn't always a mellow, understated, calm guy. There were times when he got angry and he gets kind of aggressive. And here you see that side of him come out. But notice here's the Spirit again. It's the Holy Spirit that's leading him to do this. You can't escape the Spirit's animating power. Verse 9, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit and he looks intently at this guy. Some versions say he looked him in the eye. So I want you to imagine that Paul and Barnabas are preaching, 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 and then you've got this guy over here, don't believe that, don't listen to that, they don't understand that scripture. And Paul just gets sick of it and he looks him in the eye, just imagine that fire in his eyes. And then he curses him. Like he gets Old Testament cursing on him and he uses all these Old Testament um, analogies that this guy would have understood. And this guy goes blind. He looks him in the eye and then a moment later his eyes no longer see. And what does Paul say to him as he opposes the gospel? He looks intently and then verse 10, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? 
This is Isaiah 40. If you remember, the messenger of the Lord comes in Isaiah 40. And it says, every mountain, bring it low. Every valley, bring it high. Every crooked road, make it straight so that the message of the Lord can come without hindrance. And what is this guy doing? He's throwing up roadblocks. He's throwing up mountains. He's making the road crooked. He's doing whatever he can to stop this gentleman from believing in the gospel message. And so Paul uses that knowing that this guy would understand right where he's coming from. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you'll be blind and you'll be unable to see the sun for a time. There are so many connections with earlier parts of Acts here because remember, Paul himself was blind. He's opposing the gospel. He's going to uh, shut down churches outside of Israel. And on the road, what happens? On the road to Damascus, which is also in Syria. There's a big Syria undertone here today for some reason. He's going back to Syria. He's blinded. And that is what brings him to faith. And now he passes that blindness on to this opponent of the gospel. And then the man becomes like a child, having someone lead him about by the hand. It's really hard for us to put ourselves there. I just want you to imagine, this guy was a sorcerer. The governor had probably, as I said, seen him do some things that aren't part of the natural realm. Maybe like uh, in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh's magicians. They're doing things that you can't do in your own power. They're doing things that are animated by the powers of darkness. And this guy has seen this and he's been impressed by it. And it says earlier in the passage that Sergius Paulus was intelligent. So this guy is no dummy. But he's somehow being duped into following this guy. And then, through God's power, blindness falls upon him and he becomes this child from a powerful magician with seeming power over the supernatural world to a child asking someone to lead him about. And that's the power of the gospel. And then what happens... Verse 12, again, this is understated. Just let this sink in for a moment. Then the proconsul believed. He believed the gospel message. I said earlier, it tells us in verse 7 that he was a man of intelligence. This man knew Socrates. This man knew Plato. This man knew the Epicureans and the Stoics. He was a Roman leader. He was smart, intelligent, well-rounded. And here he believes. I wish Luke would have mentioned that that's the work of the Spirit. He didn't, but we know that it is. But notice what he did. He believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It's this one-two punch. He's astonished at the message of the gospel, at the message of this resurrected Messiah, but also he was astonished because he saw what had happened through the power of Saul, Paul, working out that miracle to bring about blindness upon the magician. This is instructive for us. This is so instructive for us. This tells me not only that the Holy Spirit is necessary for anyone to believe in Jesus, but it tells me that you can take the gospel message into any realm and you can go with confidence knowing that it is effective and that God will use His Word and use the power of His Spirit to bring people to life. 
In 2011, Christopher Hitchens died. If, if any of you have heard of him, he was a very famous atheist. He was well-spoken, erudite, well-educated. I've listened to him talk. And I literally heard him talk one time for five minutes. I didn't even know what he was saying. Literally, I watched him on a talk show, and I was like, okay, I, I just lost it. He was that intelligent. And he was British, so he had the accent, which also makes him sound smarter to Americans. <clears throat> when he died in 2011... I was uh, the pastor of a small church, and most of my days were spent with other Christians. Most of my days were spent doing community group stuff or whatever it was. And obviously Christians are favorable toward the gospel. There's not a lot of pushback against the gospel message. And I was in my car when I heard that he died on the radio. And it just struck me all of a sudden, and I thought... I'm surrounded by Christians. I don't get pushed a lot about my faith. I don't get uh, pushed back or people asking hard questions or people trying to challenge this. And this guy just died, and he's so much smarter than I'll ever be. And he was a staunch atheist, and he has objections to Christianity that I can't answer. And there was just that tinge in my gut, like, does this message really stand up outside the walls of the church? Can you take this message Could you take it to a Christopher Hitchens if I ever would have had the chance and give it to him and have confidence that it was true and that it was true outside the walls of the church and that it was powerful? And then later on, I I saw this passage and I realized, yes, here we have this man so well-educated in the ancient Roman world, probably with Greek philosophy as well, also smarter than I'll ever be, than many of us will ever be. And yet when he sees the power of God and he hears the message of God, he believes in the in the Son of God. So that is something for us as we go out on mission into Springfield and around the world that we carry a message that is not our own, we carry a message that is given by God, and we carry a message that we can confidently give and trust God to bring about the results. So the passage ends here, and then Paul goes on. You don't see anything else about what happens there on Cyprus. But it's a powerful passage, and there is much that it can say to us today. So we've seen there's a diversity in the church that goes very, very deep beyond superficial issues to a deep unity that can come about only through Jesus Christ. We also see in this passage that the church was a church of utter dependence upon God. It was a church that didn't hoard for themselves, but that sent out and gave up their best and entrusted the results to God and entrusted themselves to God, knowing that he would take care of them. And it's a church that sent out men with a message that was powerful and effective anywhere that they took it. And that's the story of Acts as it continues. Again and again, people come to faith as they hear this message. So Redeemer Church, this is not just for the leaders of our church. This is not just for the church at large, but this is for us individually. Let us be people that rest under God's hand, rest in confidence before him, and look for him and expect him to do amazing things and expect him to bring in people that we were formerly at odds with or people that are different than us and embrace them knowing that God loves each person wherever they are from whatever culture they're from and be a body that expresses that for the world to see with this message.